0: to read John 15, 1 to 17 first. Um, and depending on your Bible translation or version, it might start off with this little subheading, but they're not inspired, so we don't have to, we don't have to read that bit that were put in by the pu- publishers afterwards. Anyway, I'm, go- <laughs> I'm going off on a fun tangent already. Would, um, would someone like to, um, to read a few verses? There's, we're going to read... 17 verses so maybe somebody could read one to nine because that's a section and then 10 to 17 is another section please don't all volunteer at once oh thanks jack <laughs> john 15 1 to 9. if you okay. do that bit and then i'll pass on to someone else for the um in the NIV, i in am the, the true vine. yeah the easiest
1: reading here If you remain in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, you ask whatever you wish, and you, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you will bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Did you want me to read 9
0: as well?
2: than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends, you are my friends if you do what I command. I no, I no longer call you servants, because as a servant, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known, I have made, known made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, so that you may you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other.
0: Thank you, Steve. Okay, there's a lot going on in this um, passage, and I dare say we probably won't unpack it all. But let me start with this thought. Um, I'm a terrible gardener. So don't ever ask me to come and help with your uh, garden unless you want a disaster. I I really can't emphasise this point enough. By the way, how how bad I am at gardening. I think my my grandmother tried to teach me when I was younger some skills. Tried is doing the heavy lifting in that sentence. It it didn't really yield much fruit. No pun intended. Um, a few years ago, um, a friend of. Ours got um, something in her back garden that was highly destructive and difficult to remove. Can anyone guess what it might have been? Japanese. That's always the the first guess, um, and it's a good guess, but unfortunately, it wasn't Japanese, not weed. It was it was badgers, and uh, and um, so what they did was they um, they dug holes and they tore up. Turf and all sorts. Um, So, the reason why I mention this is because when it comes to gardening, I'm a badger. Um, In fact, on a scale from Alan Titchmarsh to Badger, I'm definitely at the badger end of the the gardening competence scale, which I invented recently. Um, If I was a character in a video game next to my attributes, would be this line, gardening, special skill, destruction. I can dig a hole, I can rip up plants and weeds, but cultivating anything, forget it. It's it's not my area of speciality. So I had to do a bit of research because, you know, vines, grapes, gardening, it's, it's a theme in this passage. So I did a bit of research about vines and pruning. And apparently, it has nothing to do with drying plums. But instead, it's cutting off part of a plant, the definition that I found was to uh, cut off, to cut off or to cut back parts for better shape or more fruitful growth, to cut away what is unwanted or superfluous. So if you, if you plant a rose bush, you have to train it to grow. If you don't do that, the branches will grow in basically random directions or, or apparently random directions they grow outwards they grow inwards they grow sideways um and if they do in fact grow inwards back into the bush the growth growth could be um, described as superfluous unnecessary it doesn't it doesn't go anywhere um because what what you'll just get is you'll get roses growing on the inside of a bush and then it becomes difficult to pick them. And, well, that's kind of why we grow rose bushes, partly. um, To pick roses to give to our loved ones and possibly other reasons. Anyway. um, So sometimes the growth is detrimental to the plant. It can literally, some branches can block off the rest of the plant. It can block itself from receiving light. And plants need light if we know anything about key stage three science. Um, Without... Pruning parts of the plant, it can, be, it can also become diseased, and that is not ideal at all. But if you trim the branches, if you cut them back, you can train the plant to not grow this way and to not waste energy and nutrients on superfluous growth. Because it doesn't benefit the plant, and it doesn't benefit you as the uh, steward of the plant, if it grows in on itself. And I'm led to believe that grapevines work much in the same way. Pruning prevents the plant from wasting energy and resources, growing branches that will never sprout, that will never produce uh, any kind of fruit, any kind of good fruit. Um, and instead, it allows the plant to focus on producing excellent fruit and a high yield if you prune it. So in this passage we, we read, the context is Jesus is speaking to his disciples during what we might know as, um, as the Last Supper. So this is also known as his, his farewell speech to his um, disciples, or so this, this part is it's part of his um, farewell speech. Because um, if, you, if you know the narrative, he's about, to, um, he's about to be arrested and be put on trial and then the next day crucified. So he starts this section with these words, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. These words would have struck a chord with anyone familiar with the Hebrew scriptures, because vineyards are important metaphors in the Old Testament. And given the agrarian nature of their society, his audience would have understood the pruning reference. Isaiah, the prophet, mentions the vineyards in chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. So I'll just read that for you. Isaiah says this. So this is in Isaiah chapter 5. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it. And cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do with my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah, and the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed for righteousness but heard cries of distress. Do you know what the interesting thing about this passage is here? Is this, briars and thorns, where have we seen those before in scriptures? It's in Genesis, where um, after the fall, Adam is told that his work will be backbreaking, and his uh, and what he'll be doing is dealing with thorns and, uh, and thistles. It's a decreation, which is... It's like going back to the chaos of which, from which God brought order in the biblical um, narrative. Um, and here as well, he looked for justice but saw bloodshed. That should make the reader also think of, hang on, where have we read about that before? That's like the days of Noah where there was only evil all the time. And, um, and history is repeating itself. But it's not going to repeat itself in Jesus. Because Jesus is different. This passage that we've just read is an intimate one. It describes the construction of a vineyard and God's protection for it. The vineyard represents Israel, and the one who plants the vineyard is God. The problem is that it only yields bad grapes, which is symbolic for the people rebelling against God, shunning his word. And as verse 7 states, he looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. See, what bothers God most is not that people aren't going through a certain religious um, order and aren't, you know, ticking particular boxes. God's actually bothered because his people, who are meant to be a light to the nations, are oppressing the poor, are being cruel to foreigners, and are not representing him correctly, okay? There's no social justice going on here. It's actually exploitation. And this is still a problem if you watch the news, for example. And God doesn't want this, which is why he sent Jesus and why Jesus raised um, disciples, because he wants us to, um, to do something about it. Anyway, So into this realm where the people know about this history, where Judah failed, where Israel failed, Jesus steps. Jesus steps into this narrative and he says, I am the true vine. Israel, you were meant to be a vine, but I am the true vine. And he will establish a kingdom of justice and righteousness, not of bloodshed and cries of distress as I've already said, the role of Israel was to be a light to the nations, a means by which the rest of the world would know the one true God. But the narrative of the Old Testament shows us that instead of being a light to the nations, Israel actually became more like, and in some cases worse than the pagan nations around her, engaging in oppression of the poor and the foreigner, and even in child sacrifice, which um, is picked up in several places, but Jeremiah mentions it in Uh, quite often in in his book Um, but Jesus is not like that he is the true vine and where Israel failed he will succeed and in this passage from John Jesus unpacks what it means for his disciples to also be God's true people for his disciples to be in him and with that of course comes an intimate relationship with Jesus so Jesus is the true vine he is God's perfect representative and if we are in him we can also be God's representative. Um, one thing that's interesting here is um, the choice of words. If we just go back to the, um, the John, <laughs> to the John uh, scripture, it says this. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does not bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the words I have spoken to you. So two words to emphasize there, prunes and clean. And if you are looking in your Bible, you might have a little footnote next to prunes. And at the bottom, it'll, it will say something like, this is actually similar to the word for clean, because it is. And in English, the translation, it's, it's totally lost. Um, but in Hebrew, no, it wasn't Hebrew, it was Greek that John wrote in. Yeah, In the, in the Greek, those two words, or whatever Jesus was speaking in, It's not important. The fact is that in the original language, those two words are very similar. And that's because John wants us to make a link between the pruning of the vine and the cleaning of the disciples. Now, by this stage, the disciples are already considered clean. We know that because it says it in the passage. And also, there is no coincidence that this is Right next to the bit where Jesus washes his disciples' feet, and he has a little discourse there. That's not that's not a coincidence. That's intentional. Um, so the disciples have already been pruned. How do we know they've been pruned? Not just because Jesus says so, but because we have seen through reading the Gospels, through reading the Book of John, that they have been you know they have been doing the uh, the works that Jesus commanded them as well when um, Jesus sent them out. Um, to uh, To the people to, to to heal the sick and to and to cast out demons and to, and to look after people as well, to do what he was doing, so the disciples have already been bearing fruit. however, the implication is that they 're going to bear more fruit, and therefore to bear more fruit, they need to be pruned there 's going to be more pruning for them, and by extension there 's going to be pruning for us as well, and to produce fruit, he wants. Um, us, I'm going to say us and disciples, but I kind of mean as Jesus' followers, so it means the same thing. Um, he wants us to produce fruit too. Otherwise, um, you know, we're either in the state where we're in Jesus producing fruit or we've chosen not to be in Jesus and therefore we, we don't, we don't bear fruit. That's not me saying that people who aren't in Jesus don't do good things, that that is, that is not what I'm that is not what I'm saying. But to bear the fruit that Jesus wants us to, we need we need to be in, in Him. Now, I've never seen a vine with one branch. Or maybe it does exist. Actually, now I come to think about it, I might have seen photos of a vine with one branch. But it, the point is, it doesn't make um, it doesn't make a lot of fruit. It doesn't have a great yield. Similarly, we are not meant to go it alone. In the Christian life, we're meant to be part of a community. We're a community-based people. So being rooted in a local church family is important. Being engaged with the community while also being engaged with Jesus in prayer, in worship, in meditating on his word. That's really important for us in order to bear fruit. And it ought to matter to me, not just I can say, well, I've ticked off the box of worship, church, reading the words, that that becomes too religious. I've done that for myself, so I'm fine. It actually should matter to me if you guys are doing that as well. It should matter to you that I'm doing that regularly in my life as well, because um, then we can all enrich each other as part of the community, and that will allow us as a community, as... A, uh, a branch, I suppose, if we're using that metaphor, to be close to Jesus and therefore to bear fruit. So, not not only is it important for us to be, be close to Jesus um, in public, but also privately as well. I think that's that's pretty important. Now, meditating on these scriptures has made me think of Lent, which is the season we're in at the moment. If you follow the traditional uh, church calendar, which you might not, because um, well. In some circles, it's kind of fallen out of fashion. Now, if if you don't remember, Lent is the period where we traditionally, I suppose, give something up, and there's a lot more to it now, and I'm not going to go into the 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 depth of that, but, you know, that the cliche is that it's Lent, so I'm going to give up chocolate so that when I get to Easter, I can gorge myself on all the two-pound eggs that I bought from Tesco or whatever. Um, there's a bit more to Lent than, uh, than that. Um, but... Uh, But usually we give um, something up, which we could be argued is a form of pruning, pruning the knotted branches, um, for example. Now, we might be tempted to dismiss Lent as a, a period of time because we thought, well, Giving something up for forty days is, is quite hard, isn't it? I, I couldn't possibly live without chocolate for, um, for that long. I'm just using that as an example. There's other things to be given up um, as well. And anyway, we believe that we're saved by the grace of Jesus Christ through faith in Him. We're not saved by works. And we might think, well, Lent is just like another form of works, isn't it? And we don't want to. We don't want to get into that. Or we may dismiss Lent because. We're, it's it's more of a traditional church thing, and we're not a traditional church because we meet in a cafe, for instance. So, um, but I think there might we might be missing a trick here, and um, and, and I and I think that this, this pruning has kind of reminded me of, of giving something up for Lent, and and um, so so I've given up a few things for Lent, and I'm not going to go into details about um what those are it's basically reducing sugar in my diet and not just chocolate as well I'm, I'm i'm trying to be good but if it was just a diet for the sake of it again i think i've i think i've probably missed the point um, the, the the point is that when we when we give up something we think about like imagine we're, we're going through every day and we're thinking oh i wish it wasn't lent because i've given up i've given up cake or whatever and I like, i really wish i could have cake But then actually we think, why have I given up cake? I've given up cake so that instead of thinking about cake, I think about Jesus. And that actually brings us closer to Jesus. I might have got that totally wrong, but I think that's part of the the point of it. So um, it's not not works. It's not religion if it brings us close to Jesus. Okay? Um, So I think that's the important part of it. And so I would, I would encourage us, even though Lent started early in the week, is to just meditate on it and think, is God asking me at this time to give up something or to take up something in order to be close to Jesus? Anyway, food for thought. Again, no pun intended. So Jesus talks a lot in this passage about loving each other. In fact, it's his command, love one another. And if we do that, we have a promise of complete joy, And since loving others is a result of remaining in Jesus, we will also bear much fruit. In fact, I think bearing fruit and loving others could be two sides of the same coin. But what is fruit? Now let me tell you a story. I knew a guy at university who lived with four other young men. Um, He was the only Christian in his house. The other guys were, well, they described themselves as atheists or agnostic or everything in between. And generally, everyone in the house got on very well. Sometimes they would tease this guy I knew about his faith, and they would question him harshly about why he would choose to be a Christian in this day and age. I say this day and age. I went to university 22 years ago. My goodness. Anyway, um, so. You can decide for yourself if you think that's irrelevant or not, but I'm going to tell a story anyway. So they thought it absurd that he would choose to be um, uh, a Christian. They couldn't think about why. he Because he was also studying some kind of science as well, and that just didn't line up with them. And um, though this guy often stood his ground to defend his beliefs, they were rarely convinced by his arguments. On top of that, they um, they sometimes put pornography on the TV to wind him up. That was, that was one of the, the things that they liked to do. Um, I wouldn't say that this guy described his time living there as hell. That's probably a bit harsh. But it, it was sometimes a struggle. Because there were other times when they all got on very well. But nevertheless, it, it was a challenge. But despite their occasional hostility um, to this Christian housemate, he never left the house. He stayed there for the whole year. It it was quite challenging at some points, but he he stayed with them until the end of the academic year. And then the rental ran out and, well, that's just the way it was. Um, But never mind. What I'm saying is he didn't leave sort of prematurely. He didn't go off in a strop or whatever. He even managed at some point to get some of them along to some evangelistic talks that the Christian Union uh, was doing him. And one of them even agreed to borrow and read his Bible. So I think that's something. And when we talk about loving each other, we often talk about loving other Christians, and we must. That itself is actually, can be be really hard. Um, After all, we know our brothers and sisters in Christ very well, and aren't those the hardest people to love when we know all their flaws? And doesn't Jesus still love us, and he knows us better than we know ourselves? But Jesus also told us to love our enemies. And the implication is that between our loving our neighbor and loving our enemies is actually every other human in between. So we're commanded to love them too. Think about this. After murdering Abel, Cain said to God, am I my brother's keeper? There isn't actually an answer given to that. But the the implication there is definitely loud. It's yes. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. And if we were all to put that into practice, if we were to be our—and there's, there's no gender association here—it's not brothers; it's brothers and sisters. But if we were to be the keeper of our fellow human, then I think the injustice in the world would be would be far less. As far as I know, the guy from university that I told you about—none of his housemates um, chose to follow Jesus in the end. Does that mean that no fruit was produced? I think there was fruit produced. How do we know that a seed planted all those years ago will not grow up into something amazing years from now and will not have made a difference in their lives? Sometimes I consider my life unfruitful because I'm not, you know, leading people to Jesus, I'm not meeting a sort of quota in in that way. And I think leading people to Jesus is definitely fruit, but for sure it's not the only kind of fruit. To believe that I think could be an unhelpful trap and possibly one that leads to self-condemnation. So what was the fruit of this one man's life? The fruit was the decisions that he made, the decisions to continue to live with them despite their frequent hostility, the decision to wash their dirty dishes when they weren't around, the decision to tidy their mess that they left in the communal area, the decision to sit with them as they vomited as their head was down the toilet because they used to drink far too much. Each decision was an act of love, and each decision was fruit, but it was rooted in a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus, from reading his Bible and praying frequently, from spending time with other Christians and being part of the local Christian community. His decisions were fruit, but they were just a tiny fraction of the love that Jesus has for us. He sets the example in laying down his life for us, And now we ought to do the same, even when it is challenging, even when it hurts to be under the pruner's knife. It may mean that we need to surrender some things that are superfluous growth. We could begin that during this season of Lent. But, you know, don't be limited by Lent. If you feel like you want to change later on, then feel free to. Um, It could look like giving up something, or it could look like taking up, Something, something new. It doesn't matter if we haven't started Lent on Ash Wednesday, for instance. It doesn't matter if we mess up a couple of times. I myself had a chocolate pancake on Friday. That was because it was my son's birthday and I thought I can't really be in misery on, <laughs> in that way on my son's birthday. But if we allow the father to prune us, he promises that our joy will be complete because that is what we were made for fruitful lives, loving others, and intimacy with our Father.